Today we're, today we're jumping into this topic of peace, and in great irony, um, I, I have a little anxiety about the topic of peace. Um, I feel tension about it, and I always do. Uh, and, and I'm going to explain why, and you'll see by the time we're done today part of what this is about. And, and I want to warn you that today's sermon is a cliffhanger. Um, it's going to end um, at a very, uh, you know, kind of unclear, um, kind of a crisis moment. And I, I shared that with Holland this morning on the way here, and he was like, well, couldn't they just, like, read ahead? I was like, don't, no, don't tell them that. Don't let them know. Like, they need to, they need to hang in the tension here. So, um, and so that's going to be the situation. So if you're not going to be here next week, you're going to have to listen, you know, to the sermon online or something to get the end of it. So here, here's what I'm picturing in my mind, and I'm going to confess now that I grew up watching Dukes of Hazard, and um, I apologize for that if I need to. But the, um, uh, like, I, I lived for the dynamite on the bow and arrow thing. Like, I don't, I don't know what that's all about, but man, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. The, um, uh, and once one episode every season ended with the um, generally, I, I never can remember the name of the car, the generally like upside down across some big ravine, and it would stop. And, and say to be continued on it. Well, that happened once every single season was this cliffhanger ending. That's today. So we're going to be like whatever show it was you watch, they always used to do that. And so um, that's there. But that's so funny now. Like I got, I got zero of the undertones of that show. Like when I was a kid, I got nothing. I had no idea what was going on in that show. I was just waiting for the dynamite and the bow and arrow. So the, um, uh, anyway, just know that that's coming today. And, and that's, here's the deal. I want you to hear this. Um, part of why that is today is intentional. I want us to walk out today not feeling peace because feeling peace isn't what peace is about. Um, feeling peace is not an indicator you're doing the right thing. It doesn't mean you're in God's will. Not feeling peace doesn't mean you're not in God's will. That's a, that's a thing that we, that we sometimes use it's not an awful idea, but that's not what peace is about. Peace is not merely some emotion that we have because of decisions that we're making. Peace is really the, to accept the safety of our condition. That's what peace means. It means to accept the safety of our condition. I may have extreme levels of turmoil in my gut, but that doesn't change the fundamental of the fact that God has me in his hands, and therefore, I am ultimately, ultimately safe. And I can accept the peace of that, even if I don't feel it. And so there's a lot of places when we're not going to feel this sense of tranquility, of relaxation, but we can still experience peace. Peace transcends the emotion. This morning, when we were doing communion and the reading for today, we go through the liturgical readings, and the reading from today was from Isaiah. And in Isaiah, this picture of how this shoot of Jesse is going to create peace in the world, the, the language that the author that Isaiah gives, this message from God that Isaiah gives, is communicated this way. It's the extreme picture of saying, you know what I mean by peace? How saturated will the concept of peace be in creation at that time? It'll be like this. Children will play with venomous snakes. Predators and prey will lie down together. In fact, predators and prey will bring their children together. That's the picture of peace that is created by Isaiah 
by the prophet who's telling us there's going to come a day when peace is so the rule that anything that we would call conflict, including the natural species, predator, prey interaction of nature, will be gone. The tension we feel with one another, gone. The anxiety we feel, the competition we feel, the anger we feel, the frustration we feel, the fear we feel, gone. That's the picture of peace. We don't have that yet. That's not where we are yet. And so we experience a sense of safety because we know that is the God who holds us, not because that's the world we live in now. There's two different, now we may experience peace. I hope you do. Like we can experience the emotion of peace all the time. And I think that's a wonderful feeling when it's there. I hope you have it a lot of times on Sunday morning. I hope you have it when you're hanging out with your friends. I hope you experience that. That's healthy for us to have that feeling of peace as well at times. But I have had people over the years describe feeling peace about a radically immoral decision. Feeling peace doesn't mean you're right. It just means you're feeling something. So how do we engage with that? We're going to unpack that some more today in this concept of peace. But we're going to start not in John, but in Luke. In Luke chapter 5, we get this amazing account that goes like this. In one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the words of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the lake of Gennesaret is the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. Those are all names for the same body of water. And he saw two boats in the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So you can picture this. It's kind of idyllic scene. There they are on the Sea of Galilee, and there's so many people that Jesus is having a hard time teaching them because they're crowding in too close, and so the people in second and third and 400th row can't hear him, so he He randomly picks one of these empty boats and gets into it. It turns out it's this total stranger named Simon who he gets into his. He asks Simon to get on a boat with him and to push out from shore. So now he's out a few feet from shore so the people can all see him and hear him, and he continues to teach from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out a little into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, We toiled all day and night and took nothing. Now, the word here, master, can be confusing to us because master carries with it meanings for us in America, especially in the South, that that aren't intended by the Greek word here. The Greek word here just means teacher. In the Hebrew, it would probably be rabbi, guide, leader, teacher, epistates. Similar to rabbi, but something that a Greek audience would understand better. And, And what he's saying is, Teacher, I'm a professional fisherman. You don't fish the Sea of Galilee in the day. It's too deep. The fish are too deep. You can't throw out nets in the daytime. You need to be there at night when your, your lanterns draw the bugs and draw the fish to the surface. Next week we'll, we'll look a little bit about how they did this. And so they, they're going, Peter's going, listen, I'm a professional at this. You don't, you don't do this. Um, Bob... Livesay today is actually teaching through Luke 5 in his class and is going to be talking about the fact that God is less concerned with our opinion and more concerned with our obedience. This is a good example of that. Put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we told all night and took nothing. 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 They fished all night and caught not one single fish. And now their nets are clean. The last thing they want to do is do that again. But at your word, I will let down the nets. 
So despite the fact that this does not make sense, this is, this is a foolish decision, a professional teacher is now telling a professional fisherman when to fish. And Peter doesn't like it, but he's going to do it. And so he, apparently some of the guys get in their boats, and they push out a little bit into the deep, and they let down their nets. My opinion is they let them down on the right side of the boat. I think it's totally arbitrary, but you'll find out why I think that later. On the right side of the boat. And when they had done this, they enclosed, verse 6, a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. That's Hold on to that. Their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats, so both began to sink. So now you have these two boats side by side, full to the brim with fish. The, the boats are too heavy now with the people and the fish. The water is starting to come in over the gunnels. And, and this is a little bit of a scary moment maybe. When this happens, it says in verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Here's master, Kyrios, Lord. This is a big deal. Lord is a big deal. We're going to talk more about it. But understand, this is the original Wayne's World, I'm not worthy moment, right? He falls on his knees in a boat full of fish, gathering up water. This is so Peter. Wraps his arms around Jesus' knees and says, depart from me. Peter realizes this moment, I can be nothing but a burden to you. <clears throat> Why are you here? Why would you involve me in this? This is a great picture. It's actually not original. David did it. Job did it. Isaiah did it. Adam and Eve did it when they hid from, from God in the garden, their unworthiness. But how Peter engages with the fact that his unworthiness to be a part of this miracle. Why did you involve me in this? Who am I that you would let me be a part of this miracle? Why did you pick my boat for this? What's, what's going on here? It's, it's a great picture of humility that Peter's going to lose hold of, but he has it right now. This sense of humility of, I'm not worthy to be here. I shouldn't be a part of this miracle. Who am I that you would make use of me in this? It's, it's such a beautiful picture. Um, I, I love it. And it's, it's a good reminder. Let's take a second. Because it is right, we emphasize God's grace. And we emphasize God's mercy. And that's right. We're right to do that. There are moments, though... I feel like that we need to experience the veil being pulled away from our eyes and the weight of our unworthiness being poured out on us. There are moments when we should be driven to our knees by the fact that we are not worthy for God to use in any way. Why would He involve us in this? Who is this God who involves us in what He's doing? Don't you love how one of the themes of John has been that when God does a miracle, He usually gives a role to the people involved in it? I mean, remember when Jesus, we, we talked about this, when Jesus raises Lazarus, he still has people roll away the stone. He still has people untie Lazarus. He doesn't just go poof and, and suddenly Lazarus is there. He doesn't just teleport fish out of the sea into the boats. There's still a work for people to be done here. He's doing all the real work. But there's something for us to be involved in this. And Peter's going, why? Why would you involve me in this? This makes no sense. I do think there needs to be moments when we look at ourselves and realize how awful our sin is. How self-absorbed we are. How self-justifying we can be. There needs to be moments of that. Again, we don't live there. We don't wallow there. Our sin doesn't define us. But we need those humbling moments 
the guys got together. We went through a, a stop the demand training about um, trafficking and stuff. And so we're, we're engaged. That we got the staff together, the guys together, and and we talked about what is this for us, and what is this in our church, and what is this in our own lives? Issues of of pornography and lust and stuff like that. Like, what are we doing here, and how are we engaging here? And and that there's an appropriate level of excuse the term. I don't mean this the psychological way that it's used nowadays, but there's an appropriate sense of shame. That we're the only creatures that blush and we're the only ones who ought to. Like that there's a sense of, and I don't mean shame like the shame that we pour out on ourselves, but the sense of like, who am I? With my sin, who am I to be involved in this? Now again, don't, don't live there. Don't, don't, that's the God, God tells Joshua to get up out of that moment. There's a moment for that. And then, get up. I am still using you in this. I am still with you. You are not a child of my wrath. But I think it's a fascinating moment here that Peter has. And he uses the word, Lord, Karyos, my Lord. This is not just teacher. This is master. This is king. This is the one who owns my life and my death. We'll talk more about that later because it's going to come back up. How aware are we of our sin and what it really is like and of our unworthiness in this? Verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that had been taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. This is phase one of the ministry of Peter, catching men. Spoiler alert, phase two will be shepherding sheep. But phase one, catching men. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats back to land... They left everything. By everything it means two boatloads of fish. And the nets. And the boats. And they followed him. They determined to catch men instead of fish. And to follow their new Lord. Good? I told you that story to tell you this one. John 21. In John 21, it's a great, this chapter is fascinating it's a little different from a lot of John's other writings. There's little hints at it that make it a little different. And we don't know whether it's them connecting. Some people think actually that this is John's students compiling this story that John and Peter would have told and putting it here at the end after John had kind of wrapped up his writing. And they're like, oh, you can't leave that out. No, no one knows for sure. It's clearly John's work, even if he's not the one that wrote it down. But here's how John 21 begins. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Now, real quickly, just to show you, Israel on the, on the map. So up at the north, you see the top, you see two little bodies of water up there. The second one is the Sea of Galilee. That's where they are. If you follow your eyes down to the red letters where it says Judea, so follow down by Galilee, Samaria, Judea, near there is the city of Jerusalem. That's where they were. So since the last time they saw Jesus, they've walked or ridden animals all the way up to Galilee. It's about 80 miles so it's good to have in our head, they've made this trek, and they're going to make it again, by the way, before the story's over with, the other direction. But so they make their trek because Jesus had told them to wait for him in Galilee. So they went to Galilee. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Now, sons of Zebedee is not a terminology that John uses for himself, and it would be about himself. So either... As I think, this is an obvious connection back to Luke chapter 5. Or someone else was writing this and making the note of that's who this was that was there. I think what makes more sense is the other one. Verse 3, 
So they're confused. They don't know what to do. They're waiting. They've been locked up in rooms in Jerusalem for a week or two. And you got to know that Peter doesn't sit in locked rooms well. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing. He's back home, Sea of Galilee. This is where he lived. He goes and probably finds some friends who still has a fishing boat. They said to him, we'll go with you. So these seven, go, these total of seven, these six go with him. So they go out and get in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. All right. Now first, let's talk about who this is. These guys are tired of waiting around, but look at this, look at this, I mean, motley group that this is, right? The crew who's gathered here, we have Peter the denier, who, by the way, is still in that position at this point. We'll talk more about that in a second. We have Peter the denier. We have Thomas, the dubious one, the skeptic, the doubter. Can you imagine what these two were talking about in the boat all night? Then we have Nathaniel, the cynic. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? The one who doesn't believe that Jesus is who he is till he sees this little miracle that Jesus knows something he can't possibly know. Then we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee, you know, the ones who wanted to be on Jesus' right and left. I mean, these are not some kind of noble heroes gathered together. I mean, ironically, these are the elite of the disciples, which makes you fear for the others, right, what the others are like. But this is, these are the guys, and they've gathered together in a boat to go fishing, tired of sitting around, and they went out in the boat, and they caught nothing. And just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Why? Um, I think it's something as simple as it was just dark. Were you starting that? Go ahead and start the video here. So this is, this is I, last time I was on the Sea of Galilee on a boat, that's, the video is actually running right now, you'll see, there you go. I decided, and we turned out the lights on the boat and took video. So this is now. That's how dark the Sea of Galilee is now. Imagine what it was like before electricity. It would have been dark, right? I mean super dark. And so here they are, the sun is starting to come up, and and they see somebody off to the side, and they don't know it's Jesus. So let me take a second now and, and lay, what I think is, lay the groundwork for what I think is going on here. So you have, you have Peter, and Peter, Peter gathers together these disciples, and they go out to go fishing. And they strip down to go fishing, and they get off over where, into the deep, about 100 yards offshore, and they start throwing out their nets. And they drag them back in, and there's nothing. They throw out their nets and they drag them back in and there's nothing. And they throw out the nets and they drag them back in and there's nothing. I don't know how long all night means to these guys. But depending on what time of year it was, and it's, you know, about Easter time. So it's going to get dark pretty soon. So they probably went out about dark and they've been doing it all night. I wonder at what point did it start, did Peter start noticing that they were catching nothing? Not, not, not much. Nothing. At what point did Peter start, did that start standing out to Peter? Can you imagine John at some point who loves to state the obvious? That's John's role in, in the book of John. And so that John goes, um, man, when was the last time we fished all night and caught nothing? Right? I think that had already hit Peter. The last time was when Jesus called me. The last time was when Jesus chose me. The last time was when I confessed that he was Lord. 
That was the last time I fished all night and caught nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's weird that Peter has not spoken yet. This is the third time, the third time, this one right here is the third time that Jesus is going to show up. So you have, you have, you have Jesus show up the first time, and we get no words from Peter. That seems uncharacteristic, doesn't it? Then he shows up the second time with Thomas, and we get no words from Peter, nothing. I don't know what's going on with Peter, but I do know what would be going on with me if I were Peter. So I don't, I don't want to transpose too much here, but I think Peter's up inside of his own head. I don't know about you, but when you get in a tough situation, when you don't know what your role is, you don't know where your standing is, you don't understand what's going on around you, that, that you get up inside of your own head and you start trying to solve this inside. I could say this. Maybe I should do that. What does this mean? What's going to happen next? What's the next thing that's going to... What's, what am I supposed to be doing here? What is my role here? Who am I in this situation? And you sit inside of your own head kind of spiraling around trying to figure this kind of thing out. I don't know about you, but I've been known to do that. And, and I've done it before in settings where people have said, like, are you okay? And I'm like, I just realized I've been sitting in total silence for 15 minutes, like in, in other people's presence because I'm too busy. I'm inside my own head working on this stuff. I'm trying to work out what this means. What am I supposed to be doing here? What is my role in all of this? Peter just denied Jesus three times, and they have yet to speak since. At least, we don't have an account of it. I think Peter is afraid. I think Peter feels very little peace. I think he is anxious. Man, this is, I think John may have referenced as we were getting started, like, this has not been a peaceful week for some on our staff. This has been a hard week for us. It's, it's not been a week where, where things are working the way you think they're supposed to work. It's been like that for me. And you sit inside of your own head going, what's going on here? What is supposed to be happening here? What is my role here? I think Peter's doing that. Remember, Peter has heard Jesus say things like this. You put your hand to the plow. Someone who puts their hand to the plow and look back isn't fit for my kingdom. I think Peter's afraid of when this conversation is finally going to happen with Jesus. I would have been. Don't you know that some part of me is thinking, here's what's going to happen, that, that Jesus is going to say, you know what, Simon, I love you, son. You're such a great guy. I mean, really, it's a blast to have you around. Always entertaining. But you're not the right guy for the job. Anyone who's going to deny me, like, that's not. You're not the right guy. Why don't you head on back to fishing? Maybe that's what Peter's doing here. Maybe he's honing his skills. Because he thinks this is what he's going to be doing for the rest of his life. I don't know how much fear Peter had in this. But I think that's what's going on here. So at some point in the night, Peter's noticing they're not catching fish. And now the anxiety isn't about catching fish. It's about not catching fish. So some, around 1 o'clock, every, every time they throw it in and pull. Because this, this, this may be Jesus recreating Peter's calling. And Peter has to be catching on to this. And he throws in and he pulls up and there's nothing. And they throw it in. And every time they throw it in, his heart leaps up into his throat as they pull it in. Because if there's even one fish, it's not. And they pull it in and it's nothing. And they throw it out and they pull it in. Nothing. Hour after hour, this happens. As Peter's waiting. Is there going to be a fish in this one? Even one? None. None. I've got to think that from about 1 o'clock until about 4 o'clock, no one spoke. 
I mean, they all know what's going on here. Certainly the sons of Zebedee and Peter know what's going on here. And at some, can you imagine at some point during the night, as it's starting to get just a little bit light, Peter's cutting his eyes over to shore? Is there going to be somebody on the shore? Is there going to be somebody walking across the water toward us? What's going to happen next? And at some point in the night, a fire is lit on the shore 100 yards away. That's nervous, right? You feel it? What's this going to mean? Is it him? They look over shore, the sun comes up a little more, and they can see there's someone over there, but they can't tell who it is. And to them, now John tells us it's Jesus, but to them it was just a guy on the shore in the dark, a silhouette by a fire. Children, do you have any fish? Any fish? Isn't that amazing? And they answer, no. Like, None. All night, nothing. I don't think Peter's speaking. I don't think Peter could speak if he had to right now. Again, that's me. Peter's thinking, what, what's next? What's happening? What's going to happen? Who am I in this? What's my role here? What am I supposed to do? And he said to them, cast the net out on the right side of the boat, and then you'll find some. Oh, my gosh. Do you think Peter's, I mean, can he even move? At this point, when they go over to the right side of the boat, is it the side that they haven't been doing? Who knows? Is it that they switch back? I have no idea why right. I think the most likely is because they happened to throw it on the right three years before. And Jesus remembers that even if they don't. He says, throw your nets out on the right. Can you imagine Peter's heart rate as they throw the net out and they start to pull? If it's empty, he's done. I mean, he's, he's going home if it's empty. That's Jesus' way of telling him, you blew it. Can you imagine the emotion as they tug? And it ain't empty. It's so full, they can't pull it. All seven men heaving at this, and they can't move it. They can't get it up into the boat. So then we have this, let me, okay, so part of why I trust the Gospels is because of my psychology background. Because people act like people here. And they write about what happens. This is, this is a classic John moment. Okay, The John who you've come to know over the last couple of years, this is a classic John moment. So they cast it out. They weren't able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. You think? <laughs> I love that. That John's like, I think John may have just realized it. Like, John's just been all night like, hey, we're not catching any. I don't have any idea. I don't think Peter's been in that boat, so to speak. I think he is. He pulls. They pull. It's full. It's the Lord. Kyrios. The same word Peter had used three years before, and that word triggers Peter. It is the Lord. What a classic moment. And yet, how believable. How human a thing to do. Maybe you're that friend who states the obvious in your friend group. That's John. So then Simon Peter does exactly what you would expect Simon Peter to do, something impetuous, unthinking, a little bit silly and ridiculous. Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. Again, I'll come back to that. He put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. I love the Greek language there. It is through himself. This, this isn't a class, this is not a pretty swan dive. This isn't, he didn't lower himself over the edge. He just tossed himself into the water, okay? 
Now, here's a couple of things. Ask yourself, when was the last time Peter got out of a perfectly good boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? The last time he walked until he sank. Now, there is one commentary I found that thinks he walked here. No one buys it. This one guy's convinced of it. No one else is. He threw himself in the water with a nasty big old splash. After, by the way, after adding clothes. Who do, I mean, that's not normally how that's done, right? You usually add clothes before you... He's wearing an undergarment, although some think he was, they were stripped bare, which, I mean, fishing all night, pulling in nets would be a nasty job, and they don't want to ruin their garments. Some say they were wearing underclothes. Some say they may have been wearing nothing at all, but they throw on this clothes. They throw on kind of this, this um, apron. He throws on this kind of apron thing, probably used for when they're cutting up fish or whatever, throws this on because he doesn't want to be kind of obscene when he swims to the shore because it's the Lord. So he throws himself in the water like that and swims to shore the hundred yards as he gets there, this, this is a great, this great picture. What was the rash? What was the word that triggered this rash action? One word, kyrios, Lord. This is what Lord means. This is what it means to have a Lord. A Lord is someone for whom in the medieval era you would bow your neck to saying, if, you see, if it seems fit to you to take my life now, it's yours not mine. You define things for me. You define success for me. No one else gets to define success for me but my Lord. You judge me. No one else gets to judge me but my Lord. Now, he gets to judge you. We'll get to heaven someday in this. The, all those moments that we had that we feel like we were right. I really think I handled this well. I really tried hard. I really tried to do this well. And people hated me for it. That you get up there and he may go, no, it was you. You were out of line. You kind of blew it. Or he may go, no, no, you were doing pretty well. Good try. I'll talk with them about the rest of it. That's his job. No one else gets to do that for us. We get to listen and learn. In the end, only he judges. And what it means to be Lord is that it doesn't make any difference what everyone else says compared to him. So that you go, hey, here we are 2,000 years later, kind of thinking it's funny that Peter jumped in the water with his clothes on, and it is funny. In Peter's mind, I'm here, my Lord is there. That's wrong. That's broken. I got to fix that. How do I fix that? I mean, I could, I could wait additional two minutes and we could get the boat in. But that's not how he's thinking. My Lord is over there. Why am I still over here? That's what's going on for Peter. His heart is breaking and full at the same time. Maybe you've experienced that. So that's what's, I think that's what's going on here with Peter as he swims over there. It is our judge. It is our Lord who communicates value. It is our Lord who founds our identity. It is our Lord who judges us. It is our Lord who defines our success. The other disciples come in the boat dragging the net full of fish. They were not far from land, only about 100 yards off, which is cool that, we, that John tells us that. So they don't even get it in the boat. They can't get it in the boat. The seven of them are not strong enough to get it in the boat, so they just drag it behind them. When they got on land, they see a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Look at what Jesus is recreating here. Look how much he's recreating. Now, Jesus said to them, 
bring some of the fish you just caught. Now I know what your brain does. My brain, sorry. My brain goes, where did Jesus get the fish and the charcoal and the bread? Like, I'm just curious. Did he just like show up on the shore and go like, you know what, I'll prepare breakfast for the boys. Fish, bread, charcoal, lit. Like, is that what he did? It may be. Did he stop at, at Magdala on the way here and buy these things? That's also very plausible. Like, the people later would have been like, I think Jesus bought some charcoal from me this morning. Like, that was a, that was a weird experience. Like, again, we don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, I'm always curious about that kind of stuff. Here's what boggles my mind. But he didn't create or buy or whatever enough fish for all of them. They have to bring some of their fish. So they're going to fillet some of their fish, and they're going to add them to this charcoal fire. By the way, in between services, Bob Lissay came up and said, all of these connections you're making, how about this one? When was the last time Peter was at a charcoal fire? When he denied him. It's not an accident that we get to hear twice that it's a charcoal fire. Peter's now, now, by the way, what happens in the meantime? What happens between the however many minutes Peter gets to shore first and the disciples catch up? It doesn't tell us. Maybe they hugged. I think what we're going to find out next week indicates that Peter probably stood there on the shore, dripping wet, awkwardly. I don't think he knew what to say and knew what to do. I think he was inside his own head. I think I would have been, at least. Standing there going, now what? Now what do I do? I just swam all the way to shore. What do I do now? What do I say? This is my Lord who two weeks ago I denied. Once I start this conversation, there's no going back. Once you start it, you can't unstart it. I don't know if he knows what to do, if he knows what to say. Standing there. And finally, the others show up. It tells us, by the way, when they get to land, um, so it says, um, he stands there, he's standing there, I think, he's standing there dripping, standing over there. And so it says in verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, there's a lot here. But I, I think Peter, it may be that Peter by himself went back. I mean, he's just, he was still standing there at the shore, dripping wet when they come up with the boat with all the fish. So Peter helps bring the fish on shore, 153 of them. I don't, I don't know. I think the anxiety level here is off the charts for Peter. I think he's maybe even confident he's going to be sent home. And so they gather up this fish. Now, I will comment on what, the hundred, what is with the 153 fish? It's, I think it's nothing more than they're fishermen. So they counted. I mean, this is a big catch. We've never caught this many fish. How many fish are there? I think whenever this little moment was done... I think James and John and maybe Peter went back over to the fish and counted them. Got 153 fish. And I love that there's a miracle woven into this that only a fisherman can appreciate. And the nets weren't torn. Like, did that stand out to you when you read it? Like, no way, the nets weren't torn? But for several years afterwards, when people told this story, that's exact, sit around the Sea of Galilee with a bunch of other fishermen. So we went out there, and here's what happened, and we pulled it up, 153 fish. Were the nets torn? No, they weren't. <laughs> like, remember three years ago, it specifically said the nets were tearing. Now the nets aren't tearing. That's not an accident. That's a miracle. Now, all the different things that people throw out for 153 fish, and man, I've heard a bunch of them and read a bunch more these last couple of weeks. None of them make any sense to me. None, I don't think there's any case to be made here beyond this. It's a lot of fish, and the nets didn't tear. 
The nets that catch men never tear. There's always room for more fish in the gospel. That, I think, is probably the message being given here. When you're just catching fish like they were three years ago, yeah, the nets tear. Here, no, no. This is the gospel going out, and you don't, those nets never tear. That's my opinion. I read that in one of the commentaries and was like, nailed it. That's it, right there. The miracles here, the, always room for more in that net. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And now none of the disciples dared to ask who he was. Um, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. I'm not sure I fully get that. I don't know if it's still dark or if they're afraid to have him. To, they're all afraid to start this conversation. But unlike their last meal where Jesus broke bread for them, which was probably a lively discussion in the midst of Passover, apparently this little breakfast around a fire on the shore of the Sea of Galilee was in still silence. Awkward silence. Everyone's afraid to speak. And Jesus isn't speaking yet. So Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them again Look at all he's reminding them of. And also the fish. And this was the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples that he was raised from the dead. Here's what I would tell you. In the midst of the anxiety that we feel, in the midst of the lack of peace that we often experience, in the midst of not knowing who we're supposed to be or what we're supposed to do, and that happens to us all the time, in the midst of not knowing how to interpret how people are even engaging with us and not knowing what to do with it. You serve a God who makes breakfast. Have peace in that. You serve a God who comes back and through a series of miracles is communicating to his denier. He is recreating this experience with first the miracle of no fish all night. And then a miracle, you got to imagine Jesus is sitting there on the shore all night going, mm -mm. you're not catching any. All the fish are all gathered together at the other end of this. I, I told him to go over there. Like It's, it's not going to happen. You're catching no fish. And then when it's time, you're going to catch a whole bunch. He's recreating this for Peter in such a powerful way, in such an obvious way. And even Peter can get that, I think. Is he recalling, is Peter now in the midst yet of recalling all those years ago, those words, depart from me because I'm a sinful man? My Lord? Is he remembering now how arrogant he became? No, no, I will, I will die for you. No, no, my sword will protect you. And then realizing that that arrogance led him to the place where he denied Jesus three times even though he had been warned. And now he doesn't know what to do. Wouldn't you be afraid to open your mouth now too? What could you possibly say? I'll die for you. Well, that would be super lame. Anything Peter can do here seems wrong. Anybody experience that? When you're there, remember this. There he stood, dripping, uncertain, exhausted from fishing all night. I assume holding a silly piece of bread and a silly piece of fish in his hand just at the edge of the light from a little charcoal fire, feeling essentially no peace. The question is going to be, how well does he know his Lord? How well does he get him? That's always the rescue for us from our lack of peace. How well do we know him? And that's where I'm going to leave us today. Where I want to leave us today is in the midst of that same question. In the midst of turmoil and trial, in the midst of feeling misunderstood and unloved and rejected 
or whatever else it is that you're experiencing, to be able to say, but, but he is our peace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent your son and, and gave him the title of Prince of Peace. God, as we engage with this life, with all of its brokenness, and we engage with relationships with one another and all of their brokenness, as we stand around misidentified by everyone else, confused, lost, like your son or like King David or like most of your followers throughout history who face moments of doubt and fear and no peace, Lord, I pray you would protect us from our own wisdom and our own understanding and our own vision. Instead, you would be our vision and you would be our best thought. And then we would choose what we believe you would have us choose to the best that we can, knowing your grace is sufficient for even those of us who are so unworthy. Thank you, Father, that we can live in the turmoil, that we can live in the confusion, that we can live in the uncertainty because we know that you are certain. Thank you that your Son has come, that that is where we find our peace. Father, this is tough for me to walk away from this sermon at this point. I pray that you would show us through this the power of your ability to restore and reconcile in ways that are nothing short of a miracle. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen.